And Father, as we come to your word today, we remember that your word is inerrant, that your word is infallible, and that your word is sufficient for every situation under the sun. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come to your word, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would change us, transform us into the likeness of Christ more and more as we study your word. We pray for our children who are listening today. We pray for their salvation as well, Lord. In due time, we pray that they would know you and believe in Christ savingly by your grace through faith in your Son. So give us understanding by your Holy Spirit today, Lord. Give us understanding and conviction to act on what we know, that it wouldn't just be intellectual knowledge, but that it would penetrate even to the depths of our hearts for the glory of Christ Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 36 today of John chapter 7. Does anybody need a Bible? We can get a Bible to you. If you need a Bible, just put your hand out of your car and we can get one to you. Looks like everybody's good. Okay, we're going to be looking at John chapter 7, verses 25 to 36 today. Right now we find ourselves in this this incredible moment in history, a a moment of of unfathomable political uncertainty, something that I've never seen in my lifetime. Uh, I don't know if if, if our country's ever experienced political uncertainty like what we have right now. But it's election year, and the events that we've seen take place just over the the past couple weeks, never mind the last few months, have reminded us of how important it is for a political leader to be strong, to be confident and able to lead, to be godly. And so maybe we have just a slight idea of what the political climate in Jerusalem was at the time of Jesus. There was a lot of uncertainty, but people wanted a leader They wanted a strong leader who would free Israel, ethnic Israel, as a nation from the occupation of the Roman Empire. Their general expectation of the average person was that the Messiah would be the one to come and do that. However, what we've seen throughout the seventh chapter of John is that scores and scores of people, the vast majority of people, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And up to this point, that's what John has been showing us over and over again. Going back to just the beginning of the chapter, we saw that Jesus' own brothers didn't even believe in him. Even though they they knew that he could do miracles, they did not believe that he was the Messiah. Instead, they were men of the world who would tempt Jesus to act foolishly and to put his life in danger by going publicly to the Feast of Booths up in Jerusalem. Then we saw that the Jewish leaders who wanted to murder Jesus for healing the crippled man back in John chapter 5, the Jewish leaders didn't believe in him either, and they were hoping that Jesus would show up for the Feast of Booths, but not so that he could celebrate with them, but so that they could murder him. 
Then we saw that the ordinary people who had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast also didn't believe in him, and they actually blasphemously accused Jesus of being possessed by a demon. And so today, in the passage at hand, we're going to move to another people group. In this passage, we're going to be looking at the overwhelming disbelief of the citizens of Jerusalem. The story is told of a college student who was seen with a large K printed on his t-shirt. And when somebody came up and asked him what the K stood for, he said, confused. But you don't spell confused with a K, the questioning student noted. And the student with the K on his shirt answered, you obviously don't know how confused I am. There are times when confusion makes for very, very good comedy. No question about that. There are times, however, when confusion isn't funny at all, when there's nothing humorous about confusion at all. For example, confusion while driving has resulted in countless lost lives. There's nothing humorous or funny about that. People believe there's this thing, this this myth called my truth or your truth or his truth or her truth, but there's no such thing as personal truth. Either something is true or it isn't. Either it's true for everyone or it's true for no one. And you can be sure that when somebody uses a term like my truth or, or his truth or her truth, they, they have no idea how to even begin thinking about truth and about reality. Rather, they're deeply confused about the very concept of truth. And there's nothing humorous or funny about that. But there's also nothing humorous or funny about spiritual confusion. And when you consider how many people are deeply, deeply confused about who Jesus is. You can be talking about cults with that. You can be talking about other world religions who have totally different views about who Jesus is, any of them. You consider how many people are just so deeply confused about who Jesus is. Not only is that not funny, but we have to realize that that is actually disastrous because we're talking When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the narrow road that leads to life. The alternative is death. We're talking about the one means of going to the Father in heaven. The only alternative is hell. Now, that's not my truth. That's not your truth, as if such a thing existed. No, that is the truth that God has revealed in his word. So today's passage is actually an illustration, it's, it's, a, it's a picture, if you will, of the utter confusion that the citizens of Jerusalem had when it came to Jesus, and thus when it came to all spiritual matters. They'll be confused about who Jesus is, they'll be confused about their leaders, they'll be confused about why their leaders aren't stopping Jesus from speaking. But we have to remember that John is telling us all these things so that you won't be confused, so that I won't be confused, so that anybody who's reading this won't be confused about who Jesus is. And that brings us to the point of this passage. The point of this passage in the sermon is that we must know who Jesus truly is, and we can only know who he is by searching the scriptures. We must know who Jesus truly is. And we can only know who he truly is by searching the scriptures. 
There are unfortunately millions upon millions upon millions of people in the world today who believe that they are Christians in some sense, but whose understanding of Jesus demonstrates that they are only very, very confused about who Jesus is. Do not let that be you today, friends. Do not let that be you. Because your eternal destiny hinges on knowing and believing in Jesus, the true Jesus that's revealed not by human imagination, that's revealed not in philosophy, not in lost manuscripts of the Bible that weren't included in the Bible or that the church has never accepted. No, he's revealed, the true Jesus is revealed in Scripture, and Scripture alone. So having responded to the rejection of the blasphemous crowd, the, the, the blasphemous accusations of the crowd that he was possessed by a demon, John is now going to turn his attention and, and ours to the confusion of the citizens of Jerusalem. Let's start with John chapter 7, verses 25 to 27. We read this. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but wherever the, wherever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now we should understand that the people of Jerusalem are saying these things in response to the rebuke that Jesus had just given to the crowds of people, that is, the travelers who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Jesus has shown them not only that they were wrong when they accused him of breaking the, the Mosaic law by healing the crippled man on the Sabbath, but he's also showed them that they did not judge with righteous judgment. That is, since they were being unjust and hypocritical and thus unrighteous, uh, they, they, they were fine with circumcision being performed on the Sabbath. So they were not judging righteously. They were judging unrighteously. They were judging hypocritically. And the response of the citizens of Jerusalem, when Jesus rebukes them and shows them the error that they are holding on to, the response of these citizens is not to say, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way before. He's right. The response is not to say, you know, hey, he's actually making some sense now that I come to think about it. No, their response is to say, hey, isn't this the guy that our religious leaders were going to kill? Do you see that? That's their response to being rebuked. What kind of wickedness has to fill a person's heart to want to kill someone when somebody has conclusively proved a point, a point with which perhaps you disagree. I think if we're being honest, it's not that uncommon a form of wickedness at all. In fact, if you look at social media, there's plenty of that. It's all over Twitter and Facebook. In fa you know, the, the truth of the matter is we hate having our views and our opinions challenged. How much more do we hate having them conclusively proven wrong. And, and, and that's just what pride does. That, that's the nature of pride. That's, that's what it will do. It'll cause a person to hold on to error even when they are confronted conclusively with their error. 
That is the nature of the flesh. But we're then immediately confronted with the bewilderment of these citizens of Jerusalem over the fact that the Jewish religious leaders not only aren't trying to kill Jesus, but they're also doing nothing to prevent him from speaking and rebuking them. And as they're trying to figure out how it's possible that this is what they're seeing, that the Jewish leaders are doing nothing, saying nothing against him to stop him, they start to consider some possibilities. And the first one that they consider is maybe it's because they, the the Jewish leaders, secretly know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they just haven't told anyone yet. Maybe that's why they're letting him speak. That's the possibility that they're considering when they say the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? But then what we see is that they immediately start arguing against the possibility of Jesus being the Christ, but that the the leaders haven't told anyone. And so they try to apply reason, but as they try to apply reason, they demonstrate how unreasonable they are. They're trying to validate the certainty of their rejection of Jesus, But by trying to validate their their certainty, they're only demonstrating how deeply confused they are. This is an illustration of what we read back in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What's the opposite of comprehension? Confusion. Confusion, and that's what we see here at the Feast of Booths. This is an illustration of that verse. And this is a terrifying, terrifying truth because it's not a case of somebody's intellect being off. No, it's not a case of the mind not being able to reach a correct conclusion. Rather, what we're seeing is that it's a case of the heart. Refusing the mind to think. Refusing the mind the ability to think reasonably and rationally and correctly and to understand and believe. So the first reason that they reject the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah is because they know where Jesus is from, and and yet they believe that nobody would know where the Messiah was from. Now you you might be asking, where would they get an idea like that? Where did they get this idea that nobody would know where the Messiah would be from. After all, you know, if they knew the scriptures, they'd know that the scriptures explicitly state that the Messiah would be born in the town of Jerusalem. So where did they get the idea that they would not know where the Messiah came from? Well, there was a rabbinic tradition that the Messiah would suddenly show up in the temple one day and nobody would know where he came from. And we find evidence for for this early rabbinic uh, tradition in the writings of Justin Martyr. So this is a clear indication that the Jewish people, the citizens of Jerusalem, had placed far too much confidence in tradition and relied more on tradition than they relied on Scripture. Do you think you and I face the same danger? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can find that all over the place today. But knowing where Jesus came from, they therefore reject the possibility that he was the Messiah because of these rabbinic traditions. In other words, they know that Jesus is from Nazareth. They knew that much about him. They're familiar with him. They've they've seen him before. 
You know, if you go back to John chapter 2, which was two years prior to this, when he came into the temple courts and he overturned the tables of the money changers, cleaning his father's house of all of the impurities that the citizens of Jerusalem and the religious leaders had brought in, that surely grabbed their attention back then, right? And so I'm pretty sure that after he did that, people started talking. Who's this guy that came into town and started flipping over tables? and driving people out, driving the money changers out of the temple. They started asking about who he is, where he came from, and so on. And so because they knew who he was and where he came from, these people conclude that Jesus could not be the Messiah. It couldn't possibly be the case that the Jewish leaders knew him to be the Messiah, but simply were keeping it a secret. They have discounted that possibility. Well, it's not that the Jewish leaders were keeping anything a secret. They're right about that. But on the surface, it would seem that the reason that they weren't telling everyone that Jesus was the Messiah was because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Why didn't they believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Because he didn't meet their expectations. So that's at least the, the, the surface level explanation. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so they weren't telling people that Jesus was the Messiah. At least that's on the conscious level. That's the surface level explanation. But let's dig a little bit deeper together. As we dig beneath the surface explanation, what we find is that what they are really asking is this. They're asking, why is Jesus not being silenced? Why is Jesus not being silenced? And the citizens of Jerusalem by asking this question, are assuming that Jesus is just a normal man, capable of being silenced by others. And that is simply not the case. The reason they're not silencing Jesus is because there's no worldly power that can silence Jesus when Jesus desires to speak. J.C. Ryle notes in his commentary, he says this, He says, quote, there appears to have been a restraining power put on our Lord's enemies at this juncture. It certainly seems to have struck the people before us as a remarkable thing that our Lord should speak out so boldly, openly, and publicly, and yet no effort be made by the rulers to apprehend him and stop his teaching. No wonder that they ask the question which immediately follows, have our rulers changed their mind? Are they convinced at last? Have they really found out that this is truly the Messiah, the Christ? of God, end quote. And of course, the answer is no. The Jewish leaders had not changed their minds about Jesus, but they were being silenced supernaturally. They were being supernaturally restrained by God from acting and attempting to silence Jesus when Jesus wanted to speak. And we have to understand that the restraining power of God has been exercised in freeing the church to speak throughout history as well. If you think about the persecution that the church has faced throughout the ages, those who are well-read in the subject of church history, you know that any time persecution has come upon the church, it has always, always resulted in the gospel actually spreading further and wider than ever before. Nothing Nothing silences Jesus and nothing stops his gospel from being preached. When Jesus said, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he said that the, uh, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, 
He didn't add any exception clauses. He, he didn't say the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church unless there's a global pandemic. He didn't say the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church unless the governing authorities get in the way. He didn't say the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church as long as the church just does their part to remain culturally relevant. No, Christ's church will be built. And the means by which God has ordained that his church will be built is through the preaching of the gospel. And so the church will be built. The gospel will go forward. God's sheep, Christ's sheep will be called because nothing no scheme of hell, no power of man will stand in the way of God's plans going forward. So why could the, G the Jewish leaders not silence Jesus at he as he taught at the Feast of Booths? For the same reason that they could not lay a hand on him when they desired to seize him. That reason being because his hour had not yet come. Let's look at verses 28 to 30. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is immediately aware of their discussion that's taking place. Maybe he's aware of it supernaturally. Maybe he's just close enough in proximity to be able to overhear them. We don't know. But he's aware of this discussion, and he's aware of the fact that they have rejected him. And thus he responds by rebuking them as a result of their ignorance of him and their ignorance just in general when it came to things about God. So he acknowledges that they, they know him and know where he came from, but at least they, they know that in one sense. They knew that he was from Nazareth, but they apparently had no idea that he was born in Jerusalem, as Old Testament prophecy had indicated of the Messiah, and they certainly don't recognize that Jesus was God incarnate, that he had stepped down from eternity past, where he had dwelled forever in communion with the Father as the second person of the Godhead. So Jesus says, I, I have not come of myself. This is a contrast with the, with the Jewish leaders whose opinions and whose traditions the citizens of Jerusalem had trusted in so much, so much more than even God's word. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees acted on their own initiative independent of what God had instructed. They had not been sent by God, but Jesus had been. Jesus had been. The Jewish leaders were, if anything, they were sent by the one who is false. They were sent by the father of lies, Satan. But Jesus had been sent by the father who is true. And Jesus wants to make sure that they see their own ignorance, their own spiritual confusion, noting of God the father who sent the son, whom you do not know. Now, if you were to go up to and ask any one of those people if they knew God, what do you think they would have said? They would have said, of course I do, I'm, I'm a Jew. But he's rebuking them and he's saying, you're just confused. You don't know him. You don't know him. 
And the same is true of anyone who rejects Jesus today. They do not know God. John writes in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, whoever denies the Son, that's Jesus, right? Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now this was true of everybody then, and it's true of everybody now. If a person does not know and believe in Jesus, they do not know or believe in God the Father either. If a person does not know Jesus, they know absolutely nothing about God. We must know who Jesus is so that we may know who God is. But we must, we must remember that it's important to believe in the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. And thus our ideas about who Jesus is must come from God's unchanging word and not from people's wild speculative imaginations and not from the traditions of man. Instead of listening to the unbiblical opinions, which by the way is just another way of saying lies, Instead of listening to the unbiblical opinions about Jesus, which come from speculation and opinion, we must listen to the one who knows God because God is the one who sent him. We must listen to Christ. We must listen to Christ. But before we listen to him, we must understand, we have to recognize who he truly is. We must know who Jesus is, and we know that only by searching the Scriptures. But the citizens of Jerusalem, by and large, reject Jesus here. He simply didn't fit their preconceived notions of the Messiah, just like everybody else who rejected him. They all had these ideas of what the Messiah would be like or what he would do, and Jesus just didn't line up with what they had speculatively imagined. And so, just like everybody else, the citizens of Jerusalem reject him. And we see the same thing happening today, by the way, don't we? We see people come up with all kinds of speculative ideas about Jesus, ideas that were not derived from Scripture at all. And thus, when those people are confronted with the true Jesus, the, the biblical Jesus, they remain in disbelief. And they remain ignorant, confused about God. Ignorant of His ways, confused about His ways. Now I understand that this is a harsh rebuke. That if a person doesn't know Jesus, they don't know God. But that's the rebuke that Jesus has given to these people. He's, he's leveled a death blow to their pride. And their response, once again, is not to humble themselves and to believe in him savingly. Rather, their response is to attempt to seize him. But once again... What we see is there, that there is supernatural intervention. Nobody even touches him. Nobody lays a hand on him, even though they've decided in their hearts that they're going to seize him. They're going to grab him. They're, they're going to take him off and murder him. They could not silence him, and they could not seize him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. 
From before the foundations of the world, God had ordained that the Lord Jesus Christ would die as a perfect sacrifice for those whom the Father would draw to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the time for Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the time for him to offer himself up as a sacrifice had not yet come. It could only happen when God had ordained, how God had ordained it. And this was not the day or the place that God had ordained for it to happen. As A.W. Pink notes, quote, They thirsted for his blood and were determined to kill him, yet by an invisible restraint from above they were powerless to do so. He goes on to say they could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining. End quote. And friends, I want to say this. This is a, a blessed and very powerful reminder for us as Christians because this concept applies to our lives as well. The truth is, friends, this is not our world. This is God's world. God is the one who is sovereign over the entire earth, over all of creation. And in God's world, because he's sovereign over everything, he calls the shots about everything, including when we're born, including when we die, including how we die. There is nothing that takes place in all of creation, in all of the universes out there, that God has not ordained. Nothing. Nothing takes place that he has not ordained. Our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, summarizes the invincibility of God's sovereign authority over all things, noting this. It says, quote, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things, whatsoever comes to pass. End quote. It's an excellent summarization of this doctrine of God's complete authority, his utter sovereignty. And one of the great comforting truths that the Bible reveals about God's sovereignty over all things is that your times and my times, they're all in God's hands. Sometimes they seem like they're in our hands, but they are all in God's hands. Until he returns or calls us home, we are invincible. We are immortal. Nothing can take our life before the time that God has ordained because he has ordained all things whatsoever comes to pass. Which is exactly why the psalmist writes in Psalm 91, for example, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now, a quick clarification, a couple quick clarifications need to be make, made about this. Number one, this is talking about Jesus. And when we get to Psalm 91, uh, we'll talk about that. But it's also not saying, uh, while it does apply to the believer as well, because God's sovereign over everything, and that's what this psalm is about, it's not telling us that we'll never die, physically anyway, and it's not telling us that we'll never get sick. What it means is that you will neither die nor get sick apart from God's sovereign decree, apart from God 
either causing it or allowing it to happen. In this life, yes, enemies will surround us. In this life, yes, Satan may attempt to crush us. In this life, we may see global pandemics. But until the time that God has ordained for us to die has come, neither our enemies nor Satan nor pestilence can take our lives. A.W. Pink says, quote, A frightful epidemic or disease may visit the neighborhood in which I live, but I am immune till God suffers me to be affected. Until it is his will for me to be sick or to die, no matter how the epidemic may rage, nor how many of those around me may fall victims to it, it cannot harm me. End quote. And in Jesus' case, until the time for Jesus to present himself as a flawless, a perfect, a sinless sacrifice at the Passover came, nobody could silence or seize him or harm him in any way. So let me just take a second to underscore just a beautiful truth that's necessarily implied by this. And that's this. Jesus' suffering and his agonizing death were voluntary. They were voluntary. He, he didn't give up his life because he couldn't save it. Rather, he gave up his life willingly and voluntarily because that's what was necessary to save, to, to redeem rebellious sinners like you and like me. His gospel can be ignored, but it cannot be stopped. It cannot be silenced. God's plans cannot be thwarted. God's sovereign decree will always, always, always prevail. This is the doctrine, by the way, that I have learned to cling to with, with everything within my being when life gets hard. And I urge you to do the same. And life has gotten pretty difficult at times lately, hasn't it? Now, I've reached, I've reached many points, as many of you have, where I'm wondering how I'm possibly going to make it. One more day, even. And the, same, the, the answer is the same for all of us. By the grace of God. By the sovereign decree of God. Not by my own strength, but by His. If God has ordained that I'm going to make it, I will. If God has ordained that you're going to make it, you will and all that he ordains for his children, including their trials and their tribulations, all that God has ordained for his children is good. It's all good. Now it's apparent, as we continue, that many people who are watching all this happen in Jerusalem are mystified. They're completely mind-blown by the inability of the Jewish leaders to silence Jesus and of the inability of the citizens of Jerusalem to seize him. So let's continue, verses 31 to 36. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, 
Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, says he. What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So while so many were being deceived by their own false expectations of what the Messiah would would be like or what he would do, John tells us that some believed. Now back in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he told us that some people believed, but then he added the comment that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. And he doesn't do that here. So I think we have to take John's word for it here. Some commentators don't believe these people are saved, But that would be an argument from silence. John has told us before when people believed but didn't believe savingly. He doesn't do that here. So I think these people, though their their reasoning is is kind of shallow, um, their their, um, ability to understand why they would believe is maybe not the best. But God can do great things with little faith. These people see the miracles, and, and they're thinking about the miracles and all the things that Jesus has done, all the things that he's said, and they see that those who are in power, who would normally silence and seize anyone who spoke against them, they see that they're not able to do it with Jesus, and they think to themselves, in light of, of everything that they've seen and everything they know about him from before, they're thinking to themselves, what more could somebody do to prove that he's the Messiah? And so they believe. But here's where the rubber hits the road for us, friends. Because if they had every reason that they could possibly ask for to believe in Jesus, then we have even more. Because these people, this is, this is before the death and resurrection of Christ. And they're coming to this conclusion. James Montgomery Boyce outlines three primary reasons that people today should believe in Jesus Three primary reasons. The first is that he says, quote, Jesus alone has fulfilled the scriptures. The Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would come from the house of David in 2 Samuel, would be born of a virgin, Isaiah, would be born in in Bethlehem, in Micah, would be in Egypt for a time. We find that in Hosea. Only Jesus has fulfilled all all those prophecies. The prophets foretold that the Messiah would be a stumbling block and be preceded by a great prophetic voice, that he would be despised and rejected by men. Those are all from Isaiah. Zechariah tells us that he would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. Only Jesus has fulfilled all of these prophecies. In fact, one prophecy from the book of Daniel foretold the very exact date that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem for the Passover. So even if, even if someone were to somehow fulfill all the other prophecies today, which they wouldn't, by the way, that's, it's impossible, but let's just play along kind of hypothetically here for a second. Even if somebody were to fulfill all these prophecies today, the date that Jesus was told to come into Jerusalem has passed. It was 2,000 years ago. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in ways that cannot be replicated. 
He did things that nobody else ever has or ever could do, including raising dead people back to life. And I'm not just talking about somebody who's been dead for a couple of minutes. I'm talking about days. Days. Could somebody who claimed to be the Messiah today fulfill more scripture than Jesus has? Absolutely not. Second, Boyce notes, quote, Jesus has convinced millions that he is God manifest in human flesh and that he alone has the answers to the deep problems of life. Now, is it possible for somebody to go out and convince others that he is God? Uh, sure. I mean, we, we've, we've seen that happen. But who else has convinced millions and millions and millions of people throughout the ages like Jesus has? Nobody. Who else has turned atheists and God-hating rebels into men and women who love God and devote the rest of their lives to believing in God, loving God, and serving God? The fact is that history attests to the fact that by believing in Jesus, the lives of millions and millions of people have been transformed in a way that you don't find in any, in any other philosophy or in any other world religion. To this day, he calls his sheep, and they hear his voice and follow him. And to this day, he's able to heal and to restore people in a way that nobody else has ever, ever been able to. So if somebody came today, entered into the world scene today, claiming to be the Messiah, could they change and radically transform the lives of individual people like Jesus did? Could they transform that many people like Jesus did? Third, Boyce notes, quote, Jesus has launched the only great and lasting social changes the world has ever seen, end quote. Now think about that for a second. What religion came up with the idea of having hospitals? Christians. Christianity did. What religion has built more orphanages, more uh, soup kitchens, more charities that have cared for the destitute than Christianity? None. Not a single one. Who fought to free the slaves in the United States? Who were the predominant advocates for freeing slaves? Christians were. Who developed the Underground Railroad for slaves to escape? Christians did. Let's go back even further than American history, though. Consider the, the gruesome nature of the arena sports of the ancient world. Gladiators would fight to the death before scores of people in the bloodiest, goriest sports ever known to mankind. Who brought an end to it? Christians did. Christians did. So if somebody were to come today claiming to be the Messiah, is it possible that they could create as many lasting and ongoing social changes for 2,000 years as Jesus did? Let me tell you what else Jesus did. He lived a perfect life. He went without sin, and there's nobody else who's ever done that. And not only did he live the perfect life, a sinless life, but he died a sinner's death. He died for the sins of all who believe in him savingly. 
and he gives eternal life to all who come to him, believing in him. So no more waiting. No more lame excuses. Like these citizens in Jerusalem who, by the grace of God, are are thinking rightly. It's by the grace of God. God is the one who's working in their hearts to believe. Just like these citizens in Jerusalem who are are thinking clearly and, and they're reasoning soundly, we must see that only someone who is willfully ignorant and very confused and rebellious would refuse to believe in Jesus. But Jesus wants us to know today that we have only a very small window to crawl through, so to speak. A very small amount of time to believe in him savingly. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. So we must make sure today that our salvation is secure by believing in him today. Now. He tells the people, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, for where I am you cannot come. See, they think that Jesus is talking about going to a place where he he would teach and preach before Gentiles someplace else. But Jesus is talking about his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Jesus died. He's crucified. He died. He rose three days later. And he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about heaven. Without believing in him savingly, they would lose the opportunity to receive salvation, and thus they could not go where he was going. And time was ticking. Time was running out. And time is running out for us too, friends. With each day, you and I both draw nearer to the day that Christ returns or the day that he has ordained for us to leave this world. Look at the world around you. Look at how the world hates God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how they rebel and plot and scheme against Him. How much longer do you think the Lord will wait to return and destroy His enemies? We don't know. And thus we must be sure today that we are not counted among those who are his enemies. The time to believe, friends, is right now because it won't be easier tomorrow. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because you don't know that tomorrow will come. What you do know is that someday tomorrow will not come for you. And so, in the words of Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Come and believe now while the door of grace and redemption is open for you. And if you will do that, if you have done that, then you can live every day. If you have truly done this, you can live every day, every second for the rest of your life with the confident assurance that you are not his enemy, but rather that you are at peace with God that he loves you, that he sent his only son to die in your place, to bear his wrath against your sin, and to, and to credit you with his perfect righteousness. And that he is empowering you and guiding you to live the rest of your life for his glory and pleasure.
But it all must start, friends, with knowing who Jesus is. Not who you want him to be, not who you wish he was, not what you maybe expect or imagine him to be, but who God's word alone reveals him to be. Because that is who he truly is. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of salvation. That by grace through faith in Christ, you would ransom, you would rescue, you would redeem even wicked sinners like us. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace and your grace alone, You've reached down into the muck and the mire and the filth of this world and you've drawn us to Christ out of it. We pray, Lord, that he would be our greatest treasure. Give us ears to hear what he says and not only to hear what he says, but to do what he says. Thank you, Lord, for sending him to live the perfect life, and to die the death that we deserved. Thank you that through his perfect life, his perfect life is credited to us. Something we could never do. Something we we are totally incapable of doing, and yet it's what you require. What a blessed reminder, Father, to remember that what you require, you have provided in Christ. So we pray, Lord, that our lives would be transformed into his likeness and that our lives would glorify him. But we also pray for those who are confused about Jesus today. And we ask for opportunities to preach your gospel, to share your good news with our neighbors who are so confused. Give us boldness, give us clarity of mind and speech, We ask for opportunities and wisdom in order that Christ's gospel may go forward as you have promised for the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.